podcast about product management, user experience design, technology, and more. This is Product by Design. All right, welcome to another episode of Product by Design. I am Kyle, and today we have another great guest, and I am very excited to introduce uh, Marcos Rivera. Uh, so welcome to the show, Marcos. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Yeah, Good it's great. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, let me give you a, a brief introduction, and then we'd love to hear a little bit more about your background. Uh, but Marcos has over 20 years of experience. Uh, he is the CEO of Pricing.io and a former executive with Vista Equity Partners, uh, focusing on value creation areas of product management and pricing. And he's also the author of a new book, Street Pricing, a pricing playlist for hip leaders in B2B SaaS, which uh, I have just finished reading and uh, it was a really, really uh, good read. And so I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about a number of topics throughout the book. But before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Absolutely. And really, thank you so much for, for reading through the book. That's fantastic. I am a, in this, I've been in this field for over 20 years, but I have a confession. I'm actually not much of a consultant. I'm not much of a consultant at all. I'm actually more of an operator, a builder. I've been creating B2B software my whole career and technology solutions uh, for decades. And every time I built something, I had to price it. I had to capture that value, make sure that uh, sales could sell it, make sure people could buy it, all those things. And over time, you kind of get good at it. The more products you do, I've launched uh, dozens and dozens of products in my career. And you start noticing where you know the right value framing and capturing can come in. And doing that over time and seeing how real people reacted to real prices uh, also shaped a lot of my experience. And so when I was at Vista and I was running pricing and packaging for the firm of over three years, you see so much across that portfolio. We had 62 different software companies. And then we also, considering all their different acquisitions and bolt-ons, I mean, you can see how that proliferates really fast. So there was a lot of pricing going on, a lot of value capture going on. And uh, your pattern recognition engine just kind of really gets fine-tuned when you do it like that. So that's really the big part about my experience is really starting from someone who created value and just learned how to capture it over time. Awesome. Well, that is a, that's a great background, and I'm excited to talk more about that as well. But again, before we jump into that, uh, what other things outside of pricing and uh, consulting and that sort of stuff. Do you enjoy doing so outside of the office? What what else do you enjoy? Oh man! So I really love uh, getting out there, getting good sweat on, trying to keep my workout going. Man, oh man! Uh, through the pandemic, it's been shifting around in all different ways, trying to <laughs> stay in some kind of shape. But uh, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I used to be a personal trainer in my uh, earlier days. So I used to be a gym rat. I used to love hanging out, working out all the time. So I'm trying to stay there, although now it's not as frequent as it used to be um, than my former self. And I just love hanging out. I got two young kids. So my uh, weekends are dominated by, you know, daddy weekends of taking them out to movies, birthday parties, you name it. And so that's been uh, a lot of fun, but I love every minute of it. I really do. Being a dad is so much fun. So those are my big ones uh, that suck up most of my time. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely understand that. I, I have two young kids as well. And it is uh, definitely something that takes a lot of time, but is uh, one of just one of the best things. So uh, that is awesome. All right. Well, like we mentioned before, uh, you have uh, been in pricing uh, for a long time. Uh, you've 
you know, you you obviously have uh, your company, uh, uh, Pricing IO, and you know, you've written the book, Street Pricing, uh, which you know, we, we're going to dive into. But why don't you tell us a little bit more uh, in depth? You kind of touched on it about you know the journey to you know starting your own company and particularly to eventually writing a book about pricing. Great question, and this is another one that might surprise you, right? <laughs> so this is a a career path that I really didn't see coming when I was in college, right? But um, man, I love statistics. I love math. I love psychology, all the core things that you need, all the ingredients. And um, and as I just excelled in my career, I love technology. I was that little kid back in the in the 80s and 90s who would always fix that little blinking 12 on the VCR, <laughs> like trying to fix that. I just love this stuff, right? And when Nintendo came out, my mind was blown. I'm so, so dating myself, right? But the idea here is I love technology. I love psychology. I love math. And pricing just seemed like a really good fit. But again, I didn't go seeking a pricing career. I just, as I kept building stuff and doing it, people started realizing, oh, this guy knows how to set the price. Let's give all of our products to him. And so I've been doing it more at mass. And again, the more you do something, the better you get. But here's the thing. When I joined the firm and I was doing uh, a lot of pricing, packaging, value creation for Vista, it was one of the greatest jobs ever. I mean, the, the amount of learning, the things you see, really smart people, really talented, how they do due diligence on a company, how you grow it, all the things that uh, I think you know people wouldn't be able to see in 100 years of experience. I got to see there at uh, three um, years plus time frame. And I loved it. I, I was a junkie for like, how do you grow companies? How do you do this? What levers do you pull? What goes on? And I would go in, apply the pricing methodology. We would see all these great results. The board will be all happy. Hey, look at that. We've just raised revenues as much percent. This is great. And just catched on a really nice fire, really nice momentum. And then something happened. My wife was pregnant with our second kid. Here I am, right? It got really popular at the firm. I'm traveling everywhere. So while I live in San Diego, I really didn't live in San Diego. I lived in Terminal 2 in San Diego. Okay, I was out <laughs> playing constantly uh, all the time. So it was one of those really like hard life decisions where you're thinking like, man, I'm doing so well. I have a, this great spot in the firm. They love my skill set. It's really jiving, working good. And now um, my family's growing. I'm never around. What do I do? Because right? I knew if I kept getting deeper into the firm, I'm, I'm going to be the dad that's, that's never home, right? The shadow dad, I call it, right? So I said, you know what? I can't. I'm going to have to be you know, home for the kids and be there. And I'm not going to have a second chance around this. So uh, despite everyone telling me, don't do it, I left Vista. I jumped you. I left. I said, you know what? I have to take control of my time and control of my destiny. And on paper, it looked crazy, Kyle. It looked crazy. It's like, look at this. You got a great position. You're moving up. You get one-on-ones with this billionaire, Robert Smith, and you have all these things and everybody loves you and this and that. But it really wasn't what I wanted to do. And then as I shifted my priority to family, I left the firm and I decided, you know what? A lot of software companies out there are guessing. They're guessing their way through it. They're fumbling. They don't know what to do. They know it's important, but they really just don't have anything uh, as, a, as a great thing to grasp on to help them solve the problem. Unless you want to you know, spend a million dollars in six months with McKinsey, right? So I said, I'm going to go and I'm going to solve this problem head first. And let's go ahead and try that. So I uh, yeah, left the firm, called up a bunch of contacts, you know, made, made sure my finances were in order, all that fun stuff. And and just got at it all by myself. Yeah, that uh, that's great. And you love hearing about like taking that leap and then, uh, you know, going into something that is 
It doesn't sound super exciting on its face, but it's one of those like really difficult, hairy problems that literally everybody has. And that kind of leads into to my next question where I've worked just recently at, at two different companies and in both places we have been uh, working on pricing in just two different ways and uh, have a whole series of problems around that. And so like I've been facing this pricing conundrum in two different industries, two different companies. And, and that's just, you know, my, my context for it over like the very, very recent history. So it is like this really, really difficult thing that I I would assume most companies struggle with in some way. So why is pricing so difficult and, and why do we struggle with it so much? Super good question. Actually, even dovetails into why I even wrote the book in the first place, um, which I am not an author. My strong suit, remember, is math. My <laughs> writing skills aren't really that great. So it was you know, 10 times harder for me to bust out a book uh, than maybe those that, that love to write. But, but I'll say this. It is so difficult because in the end, right, pricing is an exchange of your mouth, right? It's really trying to capture um, something that is hard to put your finger on and, frankly, something that changes and you're trying to peg a number that's not going to change every day, uh, but you have to do it in such a way that is appealing, that's going to get the right reaction so you can land some deals and win some customers. You want to be able to create avenues to grow those customers, and you want them to stick around over time. Yeah. And that's really hard to figure out when you know the value is something that's moving. And so the reason why pricing is so hard is because most, most just go about it without any information. They don't even know what information to look for. Second... Once you have the information, how do I how do I have a structure or a few steps or what do I do with the stuff to come up with the price? I'll tell you what most people do. I'm going to be honest. When I ask someone where they get their pricing from, they say, Marcos, I just look at the closest competitor and added 10%. That's really what they tell me. Yeah. Uh, the second one is, honestly, I took the first pricing model my customer took and I just made that my pricing. Right? And those very, very common. And... I think that they leave a lot of money and opportunity on the table when they mm -hmm. do that. But if you have a good structure and a, and a playbook and, and tips and ways to kind of walk through it and you know what information to get. And by the way, I'm not talking, you know, mountains of, of perfect data, just some, just a few good, uh, nice pieces of, of valuable nuggets that can drive you in one direction or the other. You are on your way. But here's the thing. Most people, again, don't know where to look. They don't know what to do. So they just end up guessing. I can definitely see how, how that would be the path of least resistance because it, it can be a very, very complicated thing. And so, you know, we're just going to, we're going to price in some way and it's going to be better than nothing at all. Uh, even if it's, you know, really, really suboptimal in, in, you know, capturing value for, for the company, delivering value for the customer, like finding that right exchange of value, like you talked about, like how, how do we make sure that we've, we've hit that sweet point as far as, you know, the, the value that we as a company are delivering and that customers are getting from us. Um, so with that, you know, what are, what are some of the signals that pricing is actually working that, you know, maybe you're on to something you, you mentioned, you know, getting some of those good pieces of data, you know, once you've kind of created a, a pricing strategy, you know, how do you know whether that's working or not and, and whether you should either continue or, or, or maybe start to pull some levers to change it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, one of the things there is a really good thing you called out there is there are signals. There are signals to tell you if something's working and if something's broken. I think that uh, when it comes to the biggest signals, right, is are people buying your stuff? Meaning, <laughs> are people buying your product? And are they doing so in a way that they don't push back on price? They hardly ever do, right? And if they're pushing back on price, you want to push them back a little bit, right? Because you're trying to trying to hit that high end of that uh, of that space. And so if you look at you know, 20, 30% of folks saying, ah, okay, it's a little bit pricey, but I'll, okay, I'll buy it. It's okay. Or maybe they're like, can you give me a small discount to get to, to make it work for me? Um, then that's a pretty good signal that your pricing is pretty where it, much where it needs to be. If no one ever pushes back on your price, never, they take the full price right out of the gate and say, okay, yep, great. Sign me up. And that could be a signal that you, you might be a little low and there's an opportunity to come up. On the flip side, if 90% of the time everyone's like, can you give me a discount? This thing's not going to, this thing's way too expensive. I'm not sure I'm going to get what I need or the value. Then that might mean you're a little expensive, but it also could mean you have a packaging or segmentation problem, meaning you're selling to the wrong customers or you're just not selling the right stuff to them. And that requires more investigation. But at least that's one big signal I always look for. The, the second big signal is what happens after they buy? And so in a good pricing model, especially in a recurring revenue and a subscription type model, you want to give them some avenues to grow. So those that are using your, your, uh, your product and services a lot more, those customers should pay more. Those that are using it a lot less should pay less. Right? sounds easy on the surface, yes. but if people are using your product entirely different ways, meaning uh, I'm doing 10,000 of these things and I'm doing 10 of these things and I'm paying the same price, then that could be a problem in the pricing model. On the flip side, if you're selling the same product, one customer says it's way too cheap and the other one says it's way too expensive for the same product, that's another thing that you might need to start uh, um, figuring out different packages. So looking at big disparity in what's being used and what's being sold, in addition to that pushback, I think are a couple of really great signals to know, ooh, I think we need to relook at that pricing. Yeah, that is... That's really, really good. And I think you've touched on some really good signals uh, that can be kind of the the trigger that, hey, you know, we need to be thinking about some of these things, whether that's, you know, some of the pushback, some of the different segmentation, which which I want to dive into a little bit more. Um, but you wrote in the book, and, and you know, before we get to some of those, that pricing becomes stale after two years. And uh totally agree with that. And and depending on your industry, you know, probably sooner. Than that for some, and you know, probably varies depending on what exactly you're selling. But uh, that really brought to my mind the fact that you know, pricing isn't a one and done type thing. And how should we be approaching pricing? How often should we be revisiting it? And and what's the right approach for something like that? Yeah, that's a really great call. The 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 one and done the fallacy out there is so dangerous. You set your pricing, but we're good for five years. Right? Not <laughs> really. I always tell my clients at the very end, say, hey, this is actually the beginning of your pricing journey, not the end. Um, and the idea here is the way you, you craft your structure, your packages, your plans, your services, whatever it is, and you go out the door and you start selling it. You start either getting new customers on it. You start getting new uh, your existing customers and transitioning them to the new pricing, which is a whole nother ball of wax by itself. But then you start getting feedback on it, right? But guess what? Especially in the technology space, your value starts to change. The product changes, 
the competitors start changing, customers themselves change, um, markets change. Look what happened in 2020 with the pandemic. I mean, things change and you have to stay on top of your pricing because that value, that value to price equation is always going to keep moving. Right? We're not static, right? Things are moving forward. So the way I look at it is two years, you get stale. Why do I pick two years? It's not a number I pulled out of the air. Uh, but what, what really happens is in most software and software as a service specifically, the amount of releases you do in the software that accumulate in two years is oftentimes really significant and enough to justify a price increase or a different package. Secondly, most software companies charge month to month annual contracts, maybe a little bit more. So in two years, most of your customers have had a chance to renew and tell you if your value is good enough, right? So now you have that input in two years. And then another play just on every two years, thinking about Moore's law and the speed of of processing and chips and things like that, right? So if you just look at that evolutionary line, if your pricing is is, uh, the same from two years ago, especially if you're an early stage company, like really making a lot of improvement, you're not capturing the same value. Your value is so different now and you need uh, to adjust your model in order to capture that. So that's where that two years comes from. It's really making sure that you're not going too far um, in your value stream and the story that you're developing without going back and capturing that value. If it ends up being two and a half years, so what? If you do it every year, year and a half, that's okay too. But I think you should revisit pricing quarterly, to twice a year for like some tweaks, make sure that, you know, Hey, we just released this feature. Maybe we should make an add on or move it here, move it there. And then any major changes annually at the latest two years. But I I usually think of your sales uh, cycle time in order to think about which way you should lean. So if you have a very quick cycle time, people buy stuff in a matter of days or weeks, you could afford to change your pricing a little bit more frequently Mm -hmm. quarterly. But if yours takes like, you know, six months to buy something, then, you know, changing your pricing every six months can be a little bit disruptive. So going with the annual uh, is a much better way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think that makes a ton of sense. And and I like the breakdown of two years and, and some of the inputs that go into that. I, I think that is uh, that's really helpful. Um, you know, we talk a little bit about the timing. I'm also interested from your perspective on the who, uh, because in your book, uh, you talk early on about it being a mistake for for finance to own pricing, for example. Um, and I, I totally agree. No offense to like the finance people out there. I was in finance for, for a number of years as well. So I can say for sure that finance should definitely not own pricing. But there's also probably a good way to uh, to approach pricing as far as who should be involved. And you talk a little bit about that in your book. Um, so, you know, tell us a little bit more about that. Like, you know, it shouldn't be finance owning, <laughs> but who should be owning pricing and, and how should we approach that from, from a people perspective? Man, that's a strong statement, Kyle. How dare you offend us being counters? How dare you? <laughs> all good. All good. Listen, I was in finance for years. That's where I started my career too. You probably saw that in the book as well. So um, listen, finance is not, I, I don't want to paint them in the wrong light here. The, they're typically focused on making sure the numbers and the math works out, the economics, the margins, all those things. They're not really all that interested in understanding how what how and how much percentage of the value you're capturing, right? So when it comes to owning pricing, I love giving ownership to the team that is, or the uh, the leader that is most or closest to deciding what value goes in and out of the product. So in some, com- in some companies, honestly, if you're just a startup or an early stage, that's still the founder. Like that's still the founder, CEO, him or her, and they're still making a lot of those decisions. And so they should be like smack middle of the pricing. Uh, but if you're getting bigger and more mature, you're starting to reach, you know, 10, 20, 30 million 
you got departments now and department leaders and all those things, then I really enjoy seeing if you have a very well seasoned, experienced product management team, I'm a little bit biased here because I come from a product <laughs> background as well, but if they're the ones that are really influencing the roadmap and they're talking to customers anyway, I mean, that's what they do all day, then they're in a really good, a really good spot to decide like how to move the pricing model around if they have the right, um, again, inputs and wherewithal to do that. The reality, though, is that some product management teams out there are overworked, stretched too thin, maybe inexperienced, uh, potentially more like product and tech technical focused and really value focused. And they don't really make a good steward of pricing. Okay. So not every PM team is going to work. Um, but if marketing is the one that is really out there doing all the research on the buyer personas, the positioning, the messaging, the branding, the value prop, oh, they can make a really good leader as well. So I've seen it live really well in marketing and product. Those are the two dominant groups uh, because of just their position, uh, make a really great um, uh, set of folks to own pricing and drive it forward. As a third group, I've seen some of these newer like rev ops and operations that come around, which really kind of see things end to end. Um, they have a really nice broad perspective and I'll tell you, pricing impacts everybody. So having them in that seat works good for pricing. And then, uh, from a fourth perspective, yep, I've seen finance on it. Hey, at least, you know, you're going to hit your margins, you know, you're going to hit your margins and that's a good thing. But, uh, I have seen that as well. One group that I think don't think should own it. And I don't think they want to is sales and sales, you know, their job is to close that deal. They're very transactional. They're paid to do certain things. Uh, you don't really want them developing the pricing model. It's not really for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely a, a seat at the table, but not owning what the pricing model should look like in, oh, in, in my experience. <laughs> a big seat. No, a big seat at the table. Yeah. They have to stand in front of that customer yep. and justify it. Right. So no big seat at the mm -hmm. table for sure, but owning it, uh, yeah. I think it puts them in a really tough spot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you have a chapter, uh, in your book dedicated to pricing mistakes. And I found that one really fun because I've lived through a number of pricing mistakes and I've seen them. Uh, what are either some of the most common pricing mistakes that you've seen or some of the most egregious pricing mistakes that you've seen as you've worked with companies and, and help them both develop, uh, you know, the, the ability to price and do pricing well, or, you know, get pricing on track. You know, um, we could probably spend the entire episode talking about these, but I'm going to pick on, I'm going to pick on startup early stage entrepreneurs just a little bit here. Um, because when, when the value is new and fresh and you're out there, right. And you're probably solving a pain that you once had, and that's probably what drove you to start your company or, or to do it. I'll say, man, like the, a huge mistake is going out there with a really low price or giving it away for free. Um, and not really standing by the confidence of your of your value, and the reason why that's so that's so dangerous is because you don't want to create any barriers to people buying your new product. You got to get some steam. Nothing happens until somebody buys something, yeah. right? So you want to move uh, pricing out of the way. But what you're also doing is conditioning them for discounts. You're pushing the value low, and in new technology or new products or new services, sometimes they don't even know what the value is. They have no idea. So it's up to you to kind of prime them, to frame them up. And if you frame them down, it is so much harder to pull that up. But if you come in a bit on the higher end and you can offer, say, hey, as an early adopter, let me give you a nice credit, a nice break, get you ease you into this. By the time that credit expires, they are loving the value. And then now you justify the price and also leave an avenue for 
going up even higher later. That's usually the way I would approach doing it, uh, making sure there's a fair ROI for them and all those things. Don't go in too cheap. Don't cut your price down uh, to, to 10% of the price. Don't uh, give it all away for free for a long period of time. It's just not really do you well. It's a really hard hole to climb out of. Um, the second one is being too generous. So if you get fancy and start creating you know, package A or package B or different plans, one other mistake I see is getting way too generous entry level or even free package, right? Some of the free trials or freemium. You get, you're putting so much value in there because you want them to, to love your product and to, to upgrade and to, and to buy more, don't you? All in good earnest. That's what you want. But when you put way too much uh, uh, value in there in terms of no limits and, and all the goodies, then they really have no reason to grow. They're like, yep, I'm good. Fine. I'll keep paying my five bucks a month. They'll never grow. And making them do that is actually extensively hard, right? So while it may seem like, hey, Marcus, why would you ever limit their, their value? Why would you ever limit someone's um, experience with the product? And I think the, the right way to look at it is giving the right experience to the right target audience, right? Some customers may not care about 24-7 customer support, right? Because they are all their, their businesses in one place locally. But maybe those that have a global audience really do want 24 by 7 support and they'll pay for that, right? So it's just right-sizing it more than anything. It's a calibration thing. It's not just saying, you know, let me just, um, you know, grab more money from this bunch or that bunch. It's all about aligning right value to the right people. So those are two really huge mistakes that if anyone listening, if you're making them step back and, and rethink, because those are really tough to climb out of. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think that those are definitely like two really big mistakes. It's so easy to go out and like under price, um, both products of, for, for example, but also like new big features, like as, as you're putting those in wanting to get traction and, and this is a, a discussion that I, I, I can't even count the number of times that you had as far as like, you know, this, these are big new things. Are we just adding them in or are we, you know, are we adjusting our pricing along with like these things that have taken a long time to develop and now, and now we're putting them in and there, there there's no thought going behind some of that. Like, Hey, what, what are we going to do now that we've created really, really new value for our customer? And, you know, kind of the initial reaction is always to, to your first point, like we're going to give it away for, for right now, which, you know, to some extent, like there's, there's, you know, things that we have to weigh as far as like, how much are we going to continue to develop? Cause everybody's continuing to develop and, and progress their products forward and, and make things better. But there's also like, how much are you going to just continue to, uh, improve upon your product uh, with new features or, or even add, you know, you know, new products to the offering without addressing the pricing question and, and essentially give it away for, for free, uh, which it's the, it tends to be the path of least resistance, but it it's becomes difficult after, you know, you, all of your customers have been using a new thing for a while to then say, okay, now we need to charge for this thing because like it, it was expensive to build. It's expensive to maintain. It's adding a ton of value for our customers, but we've, we haven't charged for it. Now we got to start charging for it. So thinking about those things early on rather than way after the fact, I think that's, that's really good. Oh man, you hit the nail. You hit the nail on the head, Kyle. So one of the things that we'll see is that this question, by the way, 
comes usually two weeks before it launches, right? So it doesn't even, it's not even a conversation that happens even early on, yeah. right? So the first thing I do in coaching clients is, hey, look, let's have the, the pricing conversation super early, right? So the moment you decide you want to put this thing on your roadmap and build it out and dedicate your precious resources, then that's when you should start thinking about, hmm, should I charge for this thing or should I not? And let me give you a couple quick tricks on yeah. thinking through that, right? So the first one is, you're solving a series of problems for a series of customers, okay? If you are solving the same problem for the same customer and it's just you know a little bit better searching and filtering and you added a couple extra options here and there, those things are fine. I wouldn't necessarily worry about just, just roll them in. You know, you're, you're adding value to the use case you were already solving. You're just solving it a little bit better, right? And that's okay. If you maybe a fewer steps, so on and so forth. Uh, of course, obvious things like bug fixes, enhancement, all that kind of stuff all gets rolled in. But then when you start introducing new problems you're solving, some people like to use the jobs to be done framework by Anthony Alwick or something else. When you start introducing new use cases, where it's like, oh, wait a minute, this is something that you were not able to do before in the product, and now you're able to do it. And you start thinking like, hmm, okay, well, how are they doing this now? Yeah, I'm just kind of, they're doing it in the product, but they're kind of working around it. Okay, well, then that might be something you want to tuck in. Oh, no, they're actually using a different product outside and they're paying money for it. And this can replace the usage of that product. Aha, uh -huh. but now you found a basis for thinking, maybe we should charge for this thing. And so new integrations, uh, extensive, like new use case automations, uh, new data sets that come in, like all those things generally can yield a nice unique value that you want to charge for. Now, do you just tuck it in and raise the price or do you charge it as an add-on? Whole different discussion, but I'll give you the quick on that. The quick on that is, listen, if it's, uh, fewer of your customers, say 25% or a few of your customers really have this problem or this need. And I would say um, make it an add-on. If there's a variable cost to it, meaning you maybe have to pay royalties or a third-party provider, I'd make it an add-on, right? Um, and if it's really well tied into, I mean, your current use cases, meaning going from point A to point B, or the moment they stop doing this, they can easily flow into that, I would tuck it in and raise the price. Uh, that really depends on, again, the journey map and the steps that your customers take. And I'll say that, I'll say this, look, if you're on the fence and you don't know, you can go either way, start with an add-on. It's so much easier to see who buys it. And then you tuck it in based on the data you get. That's it. Yeah. Oh, that, that's, that's really helpful. And I, I think makes a, a lot of sense. So I think that's really great. Um, I, I want to touch on kind of a, a similar vein uh, a couple points actually with this, but the first one is the idea of uh, freemium and free trials. Cause you know, we've talked about giving stuff away for free and this is something that periodically comes up, you know, how, how do we handle a uh, freemium offering uh, versus like free trials? And you touch on it in your book as well. Um, but how do you approach this, this idea of, you know, freemium and free trials? When does one make sense over the other? Yeah, great question, because I think a lot of companies go down this path by just copying someone else and don't really understand if it's really right for them. And I look at freemium and free trials really as uh, as an acquisition strategy, like uh, other pricing experts, um, Patrick Campbell and, and Kyle Poyer, like those guys, uh, they all would agree that it really comes down to it. You're using these tastes of the value in order to get someone in and have them pay you ultimately. Now, the study that was done uh, by OpenView, actually, just to reference them for a second, give them a shout out. Their study was fantastic and eye-opening in the, in the sense that um, the freemium conversion rates, meaning people who try out your product for free and then convert over, uh, was a much smaller percentage than those who try a free 
uh, try your product as a free trial and convert over. And their conclusion, I loved it. Their conclusion of the whole study was, look, if you want a bunch of customers in your product just to get like network effects and, and the virality, then yeah, freemium is pretty good. It's also really great if you have like really lower price points, you know, you're paying, you know, 10, 20 bucks, 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, nothing too crazy. But when, if you really want people to pay you, you pay you money, then you want to go free trial and give them that fulsome experience, give them 14 days, 30 days, whatever it is, and then convert them over as a paying customer. And so it's like, you want, you want a lot of people, you want a lot of money. Those are kind of the two decision points. But free trials tend to work a lot better when your deal sizes are bigger. There's maybe a little bit more configuration and setup and get up involved. Uh, freemiums tend to work really well. And again, massive audience, uh, horizontal type products that appeal to a lot of different people, easy and quick to get in and get going. Uh, and again, it, it, that network effect matters to you. So take it Calendly, for example, great company, fantastic growth, right? The more people who use that meeting scheduling link and send it around and more people, it just creates this beautiful little flywheel that gets more and more uh, folks into the product. That's where freemium makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I think, I think you you hit on it and, and I think you use Calendly in the book as well as one of the examples. And, and I thought it was a, a perfect illustration of the... Uh, the freemium being uh, one of those really good use cases. And uh, like you said, kind of the flywheel effect where as you, and, and this actually gets into the, um, to, to another point that I think you mentioned is the idea of, of positive friction versus negative friction, which I absolutely love that idea because I feel like there are products out there that uh, are really more negative friction where, where you're kind of you're in it and then you have like this negative friction where it, it becomes difficult versus you're in a product and there's positive friction uh, that kind of pushes you along the the path to upgrade or, or to move in. Can you explain those that idea to us a little bit more? Because I loved it and I, I think that it's really applicable to kind of what we were talking about, but to how to create the the right type of of trial and, and, and also will probably lead us into a little bit more about packaging as well. No, awesome. Awesome. Listen, I think that uh, not all friction is bad. Right? That was the reason why I put that in there. And so the idea of, of negative friction is what we mostly associate, which is I need to do something and I can't quite get there. I can't do it. And what ends up happening with some companies who package the wrong way or, or create the wrong add-ons or apply the wrong limits is that um, when you reach a negative friction point that says, I can't achieve the value I wanted, and in order to do that, I have to pay you more money. It feels very nickel and diming, yeah. and uh, customers start to look for other solutions. But if you go with positive friction, is you achieve the value you hope for, and maybe a little bit more, but you want to keep going. You want to have even more uh, value, and that's that's a signal that you are either outgrowing or graduating from the plan that you have right now. And so, if you think about a company, a simple one here is Slack, the communication software. My company used Slack. And we used it, uh, we used the free plan and we kind of hung around the free plan for a while. But as we started getting more clients and we started growing the team, that, man, like some of the limits in there around space, because we we're exchanging files and message history, because we wanted to go back and look at messages started to matter. But it really only started to matter like six or nine months into it. Like once we were really getting deep in the product and for us to upgrade to a paid plan was a no brainer. It was pretty easy. Like, yeah, we that, that stuff matters now. So we need... We need a paid plan. So that's what I mean. That positive friction for us is we wanted to keep doing more uh, beyond what we had intended and what we wanted. And that's where it was uh, a good opportunity to, to capture more value from us. Yeah, that that really, that speaks to me too, because I've, I've had both of those experiences where I, I've had the positive friction in a product 
And you get to the point where you're, you're using it so much and really just loving it. And it's like, you know, this is working for me in a way that I want to keep going and I want to do more. And now, you know, I need to pay in order to do that. And that's totally fine. But, you know, I'm willing to pay now that I, I have been using it and it's working. And, uh, now I want to expand, like in your example of Slack, like we need to expand, we need to go back in our history and our storage versus the negative friction where I feel like I've run up on a couple products like that and I've just stopped using them. Like I'll, I'll get, I'll try and do a little bit more, uh, with, with a specific product. And it's like, oh, you've, you've hit your limit. You need to upgrade. And it's like, well, I've, I've only done like three things here. Like I, how can I have hit my limit already? Like though that for me is like really, really difficult. And it's like, well, I don't, I haven't gotten hardly any value out of this yet. And I feel like now it's time to pay and I'm just not willing to until I've, I've, I guess, experienced more value. So finding the right balance of like how much value you're offering before you introduce that friction is almost where that positive and negative line is. And I feel like some people get it very right and others are are a little bit too early in, in introducing that friction. So I thought that was great, but, and it kind of leads us into, into packaging and you, uh, you have uh, track 10 in your book, which is the choice is yours package, the experience, not the features. And I love that. Cause that's, that really, for me, kind of encapsulates packaging, that it should be much more about not a set of features, but the experience that you're, that you're trying to deliver. So with that, how should we be approaching packaging in order to package the experience rather than just a, a set of features? That is a really big thing that I try <laughs> my best to show examples of, right? So here's the key thing is, is most companies get maybe overly fixated with all the features, right? Feature X, feature Y, feature Z, this integration, that automation, all those things. Customers don't care. They don't care. They care about what these features and services can do for them. Yes, because they have an outcome they want to go after, but they don't care about your feature list. They don't care. What they really want are the key things, the key outcomes that they're after, and they want to get there with as little friction and thinking and gymnastics as possible. Okay. And so when you're thinking about the experience, what you're really trying to package isn't just feature X, Y, and Z. No, you're, you're trying to think about how do they get started? How do they train? What's their first point of wow and aha, how you get to that point? What, of course, yes, you got to give them some access to some things. That's true. But how far do you want them to go? How do you want to support them? How do you migrate their data? How do you do all these things? And so the idea is, is packaging that experience end to end, not just looking at a set of capabilities. And because what you're doing there is you're, you're, you're trying to price how they get the value as well, not just the value itself, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. And you dive in, you dive into a number of different ways to approach packaging. And I, I thought that was, that was really good within the, uh, that specific chapter in the book. Um, but we also, as we're approaching packaging and pricing in general, there's also this idea that, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier about segmentation and how to think about customers and users of a product in more than just the very, very simple terms. I, I think a lot of us are probably very accustomed to, we have small, medium, and large businesses, and that's how we're going to segment. And that's that's like a terrible way to segment customers because it doesn't tell you anything about them, the actual users, other than they're part of a, a small company, a medium company, and a large company. So how should we be thinking about 
segmentation and, and segmenting customers in a better way. Kyle, your users and listeners are going to love you because you're pumping <laughs> me with all this good information, right? This is like a, a full-on pricing consulting session. <laughs> um, on the segmentation front, right, let me let me give you the, the skinny on that, okay? Because you're right. Small, medium, and large is not the the end all. Yeah, okay. Most companies start there because it's, it's easy to see, right? Easy to track, put your finger on. But it doesn't really reveal the differences in value as much. Sure, you know, small companies do act differently than big companies in general. But you're not pricing to capture a general value. You're trying to price to capture very specific value. And you do that by two dimensions of either complexity and maturity. Those are the key things. Now, when I say that, complexity is, is how complicated the operations are for that customer or their situation. Do they have a bunch of homegrown stuff they got to deal with or multiple layers of, of management or they just have like really wonky operations and very complex ways they serve their customers, right? So you have to always look two layers down to your customers' customers as well to see that. On a maturity side of things, those are things that customers that are, they know what they want. Maybe they had another solution. Maybe they tried to build it themselves. They didn't quite get there. They understand the value of what you're bringing them. Then you have customers, maybe they're on pen and paper, don't really get it, you know, don't even know what they want and uh, need a lot of hand-holding guidance. And then you got everything in between, right? Yeah. And so the way you look at it is, as you create these different offer mixes, these different experiences, you're trying to hone in on that customer's level of complexity they're dealing with and how mature they are because those two things determine what they need from you. That's really what it comes down to. Um, size, yep, it's a bit of a factor, a little bit. Again, okay to start there, but I would move away from size as, as, much as, uh, as quickly as you can, as much as you can, as soon as you get some information on what your customers want. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, we have covered a ton of ground and really have only scratched the surface of a number of things that I I took out of the book and it was it was a really fun read and it's uh you you've kind of themed it with uh using hip hop throughout the book. So you have pretty much every chapter or track as you call them uh you know starts with a hip hop uh song and kind of ties into that. And then throughout, it's very much using that same theme, uh, very frank and direct as far as you know how you approach pricing. So I I, I thought it was really great and really appreciate all of uh, the the effort you obviously put into the book and also the discussion here. But with that, um, I'll, do you have any final thoughts as we as we kind of wrap this up on anything that we talked about or didn't get a chance to talk about? Oh man, uh, you're right. We only scratched <laughs> the surface, man. You asked really great questions. I think everyone appreciates these things too, right? I think they have the same questions in their yeah. mind, which again, motivated me motivated me to write the book. And also, uh, I just want to make sure that it's a good field guide. So this is something that you don't just read and, and put away in your, uh, on your shelf, that you should be able to note it up, put little stickies on it, you know, bend some, some, uh, yeah. some pages and reference it over and over again as you keep going. That was a big part of the way I wrote it. There's a controversial amount of tools and checklists and tips and charts and examples all in there. Why? Because I think there's so many pricing books out there that are just a bunch of theoretical, you know, economic BS. And this is coming from an economics major, right? Um, and you really want to get down to, yeah, okay, fine, price to value, but how do you really do it? Like, really, how do you really do it with in real information, real people? Like, how do you actually get it done? And so that was a big motivator for me. And so, so 
thank you. And I'm glad that you enjoyed it. The hip hop references is really just a way to keep it light and fun because there's nothing more boring than a pricing <laughs> book uh, to cure your insomnia. Right. But I think that uh, music in a way, first of all, I just grew up with it. So it was already a natural connection for me. But secondly, ever have that song that kind of just, you know, stays in your head. And I want these pricing tips to stay in your head too. Right. So that's where I, I layer these songs in, try to make it more memorable and make it more fun. And I'm hoping that these lessons stick and that people go out there and uh, increase their confidence and, and uh, take another look at their pricing. Yeah, no, that's great. And you, at the very beginning too, you, you, you kind of highlight different tracks or chapters to go to for specific questions. So if it's like, kind of like you said, field guide, you know, I, I have a question about this, you know, here's like the three places it can go to in order to understand that better. And like you said too, it, and I, I'm a person who I love the theoretical and philosophical, like we could talk about that all the time, but if we can't take it from philosophical into practical, then I also like get really frustrated because it's, it's one thing to talk in like theoretical, which I think is great, but we have to move it from from that into actual practical, applicable, useful information. Otherwise, you know, there, there's no way that we can, can actually use it and start, you know, taking it into what we're doing and moving it into practice. And I think you definitely, you, you hit the nail on that as far as like, here is, here's what to do. And here's the, the tips and things to take it from, you know, just some concepts into how do we actually move it into practice? So, uh, I thought that was, that was really great. All right. Um, well, yeah, I do have, uh, two kind of wrap up questions, but before we get to that, um, where can people find out more about you, about the book, about, uh, the things that you're working on? Um, well, I am pretty easy to find. Uh, you can go to, uh, pricingio.com and pricingio.com is just our website to learn a bit more about how we help companies with the pricing a bit more about the book. Also, there's a link directly there to pick up a copy. You can also just go to Amazon. It's uh, street pricing. You type it in and uh, one click as Amazon is so adept at making you do. <laughs> and there's the book right for you, right? So a lot of greatness there. Keep an eye out for the audio book, which is going to be released here soon. I just finished recording it. Uh, so that's going to be coming out um, here shortly. Um, also, it, I'm in LinkedIn. I'm always in there uh, and I'm active. So if you want to link in with me at Marcos Rivera or with Pricing.io, we're happy to... to uh, uh, to link in and share our thoughts there as well. So three easy places to, to, to find us. Awesome. Okay. We'll put the link in the show notes as well. So you can check that out. All right. Um, to kind of wrap things up, you know, we usually like to ask uh, two final questions. Um, have you read or watched anything uh, recently that you found particularly interesting? Oh man, I, <laughs> I read things that most people probably don't read, like <laughs> pricing reports and economics, things like that. Um, I had a really great bank, uh, benchmark study from OpenView, I mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, they always release uh, great benchmark studies. They have hundreds and hundreds of SaaS companies that they dig into, and they always have really cool ways to like draw out uh, nice insights, right? Which are, I always find helpful. So that's that's the one thing. And then of course I'm watching just for fun on the personal side, I'm watching that new game of Thrones house of dragons just mm. for a lot of fun there on the end that I just like the, the drama, the writing, the everything, the script, the characters, yeah. the costumes really well done show. Nice. Yeah, no, it looks really good. And uh, I'll have to check that out. I haven't checked that one out yet, but, and finally, any products that you are enjoying right now, you're either using and enjoying, or you have used and maybe have not enjoyed uh, recently. I would say there was a product I started using last week 
And I'll tell you, it's pretty darn helpful. It's a product called Cloverleaf. Cloverleaf, one word. And really cool platform. So what it does is it, you know, those personality tests that you do, like the disc and the 16 and all that stuff, right? Tells you your, your working style, communication style. So it takes that information, right? You run the test and then it creates these little coaching tips, but it just drips it to you. Like every day, like in your in, like in your Slack or in your inbox, or if you, hey, you're having a meeting with Kyle at one o'clock. Here's a quick thing on Kyle. Kyle really loves getting into detail, so make sure you walk into that meeting with a lot of detail. Like little things like that, which I'm like, hmm, that's actually really cool because now I have like in action time uh, to to think before I walk into any type of interaction, so we can have a a more a more productive discussion. Over there, I thought it was a really cool uh, tool. Check it out. I started using it last week, and so far, I've already really got some value from the little tips that drips me every day when I work with my team. Wow. Okay, I'm gonna have to check that out because I I love that idea, and I was using um, a different product uh, a little while ago that I that, and that was some of the feedback that I gave their team is like it would be great to get just little pieces of feedback in preparation for either meetings or other things. And, and it sounds like this one's actually doing something like that. So I'm definitely going to have to check that out because that sounds uh, just awesome. Uh, cool. Well, uh, Marcos, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I feel like we could dive into all of these topics for probably hours on end, but um, really appreciate the insight and the conversation. It, it has been, I think, really, really useful. And for everybody uh, who wants to look and see more um, we'll definitely have the link in the show notes to the book, which is uh, it's a really good read. So definitely check that out as well. And Marcos, thank you again. Kyle, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right. All right. Thank you, everybody, as well. And we will talk again next time. Thanks again for listening. If you like the show, be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow the show on Twitter at prod by design. That's prod underscore by underscore design. You can follow me at Kyle Larry Evans on Twitter as well. If you want more product conversation, check out my newsletter product thinking at productthinking.cc. You can follow me on Medium at Kaya Larry Evans as well, or check out my Medium publication, uh, Product by Design. Thanks again.